Well, brothers and sisters, uh, tonight we're going to look one more time at the Westminster Larger Catechism in terms of thinking about Christ's incarnation and the two natures of Christ. And we're at question and answer 39. You can find that on page 943 and 944 on the back of your hymnal. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39, page 943. Question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man and he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities that we might receive adoption as sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. You'll probably remember last time we considered why it was necessary for our mediator to be God and, and we considered there are several reasons. First, because on the cross he bore the infinite wrath of God in our place and had his human nature not been united to his divine nature, his human nature would have been annihilated. Second, his divine nature ensured that uh, the Lord Jesus would surely accomplish the salvation God had planned for his people. His divine nature meant it was impossible for him to sin. And, and we learned this is the doctrine that theologians call the impeccability of Christ, that he was incapable of sinning. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Third, his divine nature gave worth and efficacy and authority to save all of God's people to the uttermost. And then fourth, his divine nature was necessary to conquer our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, and to provide us and bring us to everlasting salvation. And that brings us to question 39. Why was it requisite then that the mediator should be a man? And, and, and let's start with this. Because no other creature could have accomplished our salvation. We needed a man mediator, a human mediator. God created man. And he created man to be in a covenant relationship with him. He was created to be the crown jewel of creation, to reflect God's image and to reflect God's glory. That was the high purpose for which Adam was created. And of course, we know Adam broke covenant with God and, and rebelled. And, and so the creature that God had made to especially reflect his glory was shattered and disfigured in the corruption of his sin. And, and we learn something here amazing about God's grace and God's intentions in redemptive history. It was his divine purpose to be worshiped and adored by humans, by image bearers like us with a body and soul who'll be able to enjoy him and glorify him forever. And so notice the, the language of the catechism. It says, Christ became man to advance our nature. Now there's a lot in that phrase about the dignity of human beings but the fact that God chose to advance our nature at its heart tells us and reminds us that only one 
with our nature could properly advance our nature. And since it's a man who sinned and broke covenant, only a true man can satisfy God's justice and be our mediator. An angel couldn't be our mediator. No animal could be our mediator. No other being could have accomplished our redemption. It had to be a true man. Justice demanded no less. Now the catechism lists several important reasons why, why this is true, why he had to be true man. First, that, that he might perform obedience to the law. You remember, Adam wasn't obedient. We're incapable of obedience that merits salvation. And so we need a mediator who can provide a living and active obedience for us, a living and active obedience that will merit salvation in our place. That's Christ, that's our mediator. Second, we need a mediator who will suffer in our place. All of humanity deserves to suffer God's punishment for our rebellion. So we need a true man, again, for justice sake, to stand in our place as our designated substitute. Third, we need a mediator who will make intercession for us as one who has fellow feelings of our infirmity. In other words, we need one who can sympathize with our frailties, who knows the, the struggles of living and existing in a fallen creation. Remember, God in his divine essence cannot suffer because he cannot change. Only a mediator with a like nature could sympathize with us. And then let me mention two glorious benefits we get from uh, Christ having a true human nature. First, to receive us as the sons of God, right? God's son became true human, so redeemed humans can become true sons of God. Second, we have comfort because in his humanity, he opened the way to the throne of grace. <laughs> now, I've just gone through some bullet points <laughs> of some really heady theology. And I do hope some of it sticks, but you're free, uh, welcome to ask questions during our question and answer period. And what I want to do is look at a passage that, that kind of ties a number of these truths together. So let me ask you to turn in your Bible, your Bibles to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Let me pause there, right? There's no redemption for fallen angels, period. There are elect angels and there are reprobate angels and there's no redemption for them because Christ came, he took on a human nature to redeem human beings, the seed of Abraham. 
verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, this is a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ as our high priest. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, what makes Jesus a perfect high priest is because he's merciful toward us and he's faithful toward God. That makes him our perfect mediator. And because he's perfect, because he's righteous, because he obeyed God's law, he's able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted, right? So because he has a a like human nature as ours, he's able to sympathize with us. Now, last week, as I mentioned a few moments ago, last week we learned a bit about the impeccability of Christ. And I want to just reflect on that for a moment or two. Because although the impeccability of Christ was pretty well accepted up until about 75, 80 years ago, in recent years there are some who push back against it. And it's sometimes said of those who want to refute the impeccability of Christ that if he was incapable of sinning, then he can't really know what temptation is like and can't sympathize with us in our temptation. And from that, they, they reason he must have been able to sin. Again, if he can sympathize with us, he must have been able to sin. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the logic is almost exactly backwards. First off, we know Jesus faced temptation. And he faced temptation directly at the hands of the devil. And, and I think we can just acknowledge the devil worked a little bit harder on Jesus than he ever is going to chip, work on Chip Bird in Holland, Michigan. Right? Because he was the appointed mediator and savior of the world. And so he knew temptation. And secondly, it's precisely because he was sinless and incapable of sin that he understands temptation in a way we can't fathom. I mean, here's the thing. The one who resists temptation to the end as he did and never gives in, that person will know the power of temptation in a greater way than than the one who yields to it sooner rather than later. You might think of it this way. If you have two runners, one is a marathoner, He's used to going out and trotting 26.2 miles. You got another guy. He's a casual runner. Runs two, three miles, maybe two, three times a week. The marathoner can say to the casual runner, I know what it's like to run two miles. But the casual runner can simply not, the casual runner simply has no idea what it's like to run 26 miles. Why? Because he's never gone that far. The fact that you and I sin means that we don't deal with temptation indefinitely. At some point, we succumb to it. How long can you go without sinning? A minute? A few minutes? An hour? A couple hours? Jesus won his entire life, the entirety of his human life, 33 years. He knows the extent of temptation 
in ways we can't comprehend. He's a high priest who's able to aid those who are tempted. And because our God was true God and true man and incapable of sinning, he's the one we can turn to for sympathy.